Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold my feet back from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Those are verses 97 to 104 of Psalm 119, which is, uh, the well, verses 97 to 120 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, August the 4th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our study in the life of David. We're in 2 Samuel 9, the first 13 verses, also studying in Acts 19, verses 1 to 10, as well as Mark 8, 34 to 9, 1. So we're continuing to see this this recognition thing and and the, the idea of seeing things rightly as opposed to sort of looking through the natural eyes and seeing things the, the way that we've been taught and trained to see them all our lives. Some, some of the training is formal, some of the training is informal. Sometimes we, we see things the way we are because we're accustomed to seeing things a certain way, and, and then we, we have to fit everything into categories. One of the uh, things that happened with Will, for instance, is, is he was coming out of the uh, coma that, they, that, that he was in. He was coming out from under fentanyl and all kinds of other stuff, and, and he was in the... Um, not in the ICU, but but he he had gone to a step down unit, and so be, because he was still not himself, um, he was still under the anesthetic and still coming out from all that. He was a risk to get up, you know, it, impulsively if he needed to go to the bathroom because it was normal for him to do that, but he shouldn't do that because he didn't have a helmet at that time, and so he could have fallen and caused irreparable brain damage if he had, had hit his head on something. And so it's a, it, it was a big deal, right? So, But it's also during COVID. And so all the CNAs, they had CNAs in there 24 hours a day, and all the CNAs wore masks. Well, many of those CNAs were, were young women in their 20s, in their early 20s, with blonde hair. Well, it happened that Will dated a girl who had blonde hair and was in her 20s, um, and he had dated her for two or three years, and they were very close. They had, you know, great relationship and all that, and then it ended. But um, anyway, whatever it is, it is on that. But Will mistook all those CNAs that had those characteristics for the girl that he had dated, called them by, by her name, and, and continued to see it that way. And why was that? Well, because they had those masks on. He couldn't see the rest of their face. And so what our brain does is it fills in the blanks. If it can't see something, the, it, the brain doesn't like to not see the full picture. And so it will sometimes add things to the full picture. You've seen those things where you've got, you know, where you look at it and you say, do you see this or this? Do you see an old woman or do you see a, uh, something else? And so th- it's that kind of thing. The brain is going to fill in the blanks because it doesn't like an incomplete picture. And that's the reason they use things like the Rorschach test. And so we're going to continue kind of looking at that. And so here David now is satisfied. He's, he is there. He has now been promised a kingdom. He's in Jerusalem. He's been promised that his kingdom will endure forever. And so now he wants to do something. He wants to fulfill a promise, a covenant promise that he made to Jonathan. He wants to show that he is the same kind of man as God. 
as far as his character is concerned. He made a covenant with Jonathan to take care and make sure that Jonathan's uh, uh, children and grandchildren never lacked for anything. And so David says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's not directly for that person's sake. It's because he has a covenant relationship with Jonathan, and he made him a forever promise. So there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. So he comes in, and David you know, has a conversation with him. Is there anybody still uh, of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him? And he said, yep, there is a guy named uh, son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And David says, where is he? He said, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So David sent and had him brought from the house and brought him in. And Mephibosheth comes before David. He falls on his face and pays homage. And David has the conversation with him. Mephibosheth, behold, I'm your servant. David says, don't fear, for I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. I mean, what a promise. This guy is brought from being at somebody else's house. He's brought in and said, I'm going to give you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. Everything. An undivided inheritance of what Saul had. David's going to take it and give it back to Mephibosheth. I mean, it's amazing. It's, are you serious, David? My grandfather, the one that wanted to kill you? You're going to preserve his heritage and his legacy? And give me all this land in Benjamin, and you're also going to bring me now into your house, and I'll eat at your table. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And it's an interesting way of saying that, because at one point when Saul's chasing David, David's response is, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? I'm nobody. I'm worthless. And so Mephibosheth now uses that same exact language with David. Why should you show regard for a dead dog such as I? And all of this brings me back to always with David, particularly is to Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? And he, he says that after he has, has pondered the universe, pondered creation. You can see this shepherd out in the fields, and it's nighttime, and he's looking up in the sky, and he sees the stars, he sees the moon, he sees all of this, and sees his own insignificance, and he asks the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? And that's the question that David asks again and again, and it's the question that Mephibosheth asks here. Of all the things in the world, David, that you could do, and all the people who you could pay attention to, why me? And we need to take that attitude before God. We need to have that humility before him, the wonder and the awe that's expressed in all that. But it's also that wonder and awe is all wrapped up in the reality that God loves you. You are his child, but why should that be? That, that's the, the question we need to continually ask, and we need to continue to have that awe and wonder in our heart. For what a wondrous thing it is that God has chosen us and loves us. So then he calls, Saul calls, or Saul, David calls Ziba, Saul's servant, and says, Everything that belonged to Saul and all his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will always eat at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba had a lot. Ziba was, was not a poor man. And now, so 
what's happened is, is that he's got 35 men now who are going to be looking after the interests of Mephibosheth. It's something to remember. It's going to be a while before we get to it, but this all comes back around, Zeba and Mephibosheth. And Zeba turns out not to be all that great a guy. So anyway, his response, though, is according to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants, all 35 of those men. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Well, we've already been told that he was lame in both his feet. We've been told that twice now. Why are we told that again? It's because of this. When David conquers Jerusalem, it's this very strange thing, because this comes at the end of 1 Samuel 24, and we skip this passage for some reason in the reading at that point. <clears throat> the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the occupants of the land at the time, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here, thinking it's no big deal, you can't come up and get into Jerusalem David, we're not afraid of you at all. The blind and the lame could beat you. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And here you've got Mephibosheth. So no matter what David hates, Mephibosheth, even though he's lame, is good to go because he is Jonathan's son. And so David recognizes there's more to this man than being lame. There's more to him than that. I can, I can hate the blind and the lame, but, but for Jonathan's sake, and for the sake of the covenant that I've made with him, I will love this man and I will provide for him and all that he needs, and, and I will treat him better than well. So in the gospel lesson, the crowds come to Jesus, and, and he says, this is right after Jesus has asked them who they say he was, and Peter has confessed he's the Christ, but then Peter rebuked Jesus for telling him that he was going to have to suffer and die. So he called the crowds to him at this point, and this is still in response to Peter. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain his whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels it, it it's a it's a question of value right it's a question of what do we see and how do we understand things do we do we understand the kingdom of god to be the most precious thing in the world and that we can have it only by forsaking everything else like he invited the rich young ruler to do? Or do we want to hang on to both things at the same time? Jesus told the rich young ruler, you can't have them both. You got to let go of one inheritance to grab hold of the other. And the man made a choice. He made a value choice. He made a cost-benefit analysis and decided it's not worth it. Because he still had his eyes fixed on the wrong things, the things that are going to go away, the things that don't endure. And I think that's the thing, that the things that we can see have more value to us than the things that we can't see. And that's what Jesus is saying here today, is to say, let go of it all. Let go of everything. Whatever hinders you from seeking hard after the kingdom of God, let go of it. See it for what it's actually worth. See it in terms of eternity. And come to grips with that. And if you're going to lose your life... Well, then good, because that's where you're going to find it. 
if you'll lay down your life. And, and like I said, that's what we had to do with Will. We had, to, we had that first day when it happened, while we were in the uh, hospital waiting, we, we, Suzanne and I both had to look at each other and say, we've got to give him up. We have to give him up. We have to be willing to lay down our son just as surely as Abraham laid down Isaac that day. And, and we were blessed that God gave him back to us. Now, that's not always the way it works. I, that's, there's no principle in my story. None. I've been in way too many situations where that didn't happen. But at the same time, it's the thing we have to do. And we can do that because we know there's an eternity that we'll participate in. And so if I'm willing to lay down my life today, it's only because I know that I'll have it throughout all eternity if I make that sacrifice today. And then it becomes no sacrifice at all. The value calculation, the cost-benefit calculation is taken care of when we think in terms of eternity. And the cross, and more importantly, the resurrection, allow us to do that. Jesus laid down his life in order that he might take it up again. And he took it up again throughout all eternity. He laid down equality with God in order to do all those things. So he calls us to do something that he himself was willing to do. And he laid down way more than we did in order to, to do that. So we've got to see correctly. We've got to understand things rightly. In, in this Acts passage today, remember Apollos yesterday, that he had to be taken apart by Priscilla and Aquila because they saw something or heard something that was missing in his testimony of Jesus. And that was the Holy Spirit. He was not aware of that. He only knew through the baptism of John, which was which is a lot. <laughs> I mean, it, it's something brand new, certainly, and it's way more important than anything else that has ever come before it. But the, but the giving of the Holy Spirit to those who believe is essential. And in too many churches today, nobody talks about the Holy Spirit. Nobody talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody talks about what's possible through the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to reach into possibilities and we want to reach out and do those greater works than these that Jesus promised we would do, we've got to know more and more about the Holy Spirit. We can't ignore the Holy Spirit and talk about the Holy Duo because we're afraid of what the Holy Spirit might do. Well, there's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing at all. It's the seal and the promise of God. It's the power of God living in us. Is what the Holy Spirit is. It's a person. I don't mean to say it. I should say he. But, but so Paul w was going through the inland country, and he comes to Ephesus again, where he had said that he'd try and come back to him later. And he finds some disciples there, and he asks them an odd question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And we don't know if Priscilla and Aquila have sent word that says, you know, uh, about Apollos and his ministry. But, but Paul, there's something here that Paul doesn't see, something that's not right. And so they said, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. We don't even know what you're talking about, Paul. He said, what were you baptized into then? He said, into John's, they said, into John's baptism. He said, ah, let me give you the rest of the story. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. Oh, oh, you mean the Jesus that Apollos told us about? Yeah, uh -huh, that one. Oh, well, we believe in him. All right, now let's baptize you into that baptism. Let's move beyond the baptism for repentance of sins of, uh, into baptism in, of belief in Jesus. And, and then immediately he lays hands on him. The Holy Spirit comes on him. They're speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. I mean, you know, you read that, you read it in most churches, and people panic, right? I'm going, God, if I get baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm going to speak in tongues and, and prophesy. Well, okay, so let's say you do. Isn't that a good thing? 
it, would that not be a good thing? I mean, you're not going to be walking around in public and suddenly begin to bust out in tongues if you've received the gift of tongues. It, 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 it's in a certain places. It's, it's for the edification, the building up of the church. All the, all the gifts are for the building up of the church. So it's, it's not going to make you some weirdo Who's, who you're going to look at and go, oh my gosh, he has lost his mind. What is he talking about? What is he babbling about over there? It, it, no, and you're not going to prophesy in that way. I have a friend who, who had a wonderful um, ministry, and that ministry was strange to me. didn't make any sense. Uh, initially, it was a ministry of intercession, and then he would give me lists of people on a regular basis. This is in a church of about 1,100 people to, that I would need to be in contact with because the Lord had told him that, there was, that these people were going to come into my field of vision, and they did. I mean, without fail, he would be exactly right. We'd meet about it once a month and, and go through this. We, we got together other times because we were friends, but, but once a month we would have this specific meeting where he would give me the names of people, and it was uncanny. People he didn't even know. But then later... The Lord would give him words to speak to people in restaurants and stuff like that. It's like, oh, can I, I, I couldn't do that. And if you met this guy, you'd be shocked that it was him. He's dead now, but, but you'd be stunned that a man like this, one of the quietest men I've ever met on earth, that the Lord would prompt him to go speak to strangers in restaurants and, tell, and, and ask them things and tell them things. But, but that's an unusual ministry. He's the only person I know who had that ministry. But sometimes he will tell us things about people who are around us, whether they're in our church or not. But it's for their good that he tells us these things. And so when Paul does this, lays hands on these people, they, they receive the Holy Spirit, and there's evidence that they've received the Holy Spirit. Paul would have expected there to be evidence. It's the same thing that happened in Samaria when the disciples went out and laid hands on, or the apostles went out and laid hands on the people that Philip had baptized. And so for three months... Then Paul stays there and reasons and persuades with them about the kingdom of God. And then some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So he withdrew and took the disciples with him, reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus, which would be a Roman place. And he stayed there for two years and continued to preach in that hall of Tyrannus because he was allowed there in a way that he wasn't allowed to have peace when he spoke in the other. But, but what do we see? What is the evidence of our eyes? And and do we see evidence of the Holy Spirit in, in other people's lives? Or do we need to pray for more and more of the Spirit to be given to the church and to its leaders? I think it's important that we do that. We need men and women who will speak boldly. And we need to see signs and wonders for our own faith, but uh, also for, for evidence that the proclamation is true.